0: Wow. Awesome. Friends, welcome uh, to the uh, 10 o'clock. No, praise the Lord. The nine o'clock service of the well. Uh, My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here with Campus Ministry. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, let's try to fix that after the service. I'd love to be able to meet you if we haven't had a chance to do that yet. Uh, I'm going to be walking us into an amazing text that we find in Numbers chapter 21. Uh, picking up on the story that we left off with uh, last week when Stacy uh, shared with us a great challenge that came right out of Numbers 13 and 14, the challenge to walk by faith and not by fear. Sadly, for Israel, they chose to not trust God's faithfulness uh, as he was walking them into the land that he had promised to them, the land that he had promised hundreds of years ago to their ancestor Abraham, They chose not to live uh, in faith, but in chose said to walk in fear. And when we live by fear and not by faith, that has consequences. And number 14, God pronounces uh, a sentence on Israel's unfaithfulness, not trusting him and trusting his promises. And he says that you're going to wander in this desert for 40 years, for a whole generation. You're going to be in this desert. And so I want to show you quickly up on the screen here. We have a, uh, a map of the area. So we start over here. We, we, my bad. We start over here in in Egypt, they go, God provides for them from Egypt all through this route, they get right up to the edge to cross over and walk up to the promised land, and they choose fear and not faith, and because of that they wander in this area for the better part of 40 years as God raises up a new generation and asks them the question, will you walk by faith and not by fear? And that's what we're picking up uh, on the story today in Numbers chapter 21, near the end of that journey in the desert. Uh, at uh, right around the edge of that time, Moses sends a letter to the king of Edom. This is Edom right over here. They, w- they go right over here. They're right on the edge of it. Moses sends a letter to the king. Edom are the ancestor, uh, ancestral cousins of Israel. There's a twin brother that Israel has named Esau. These are all Esau's descendants, so they're long-lost relatives. They send a letter saying, hey, Uh, we would like to cross over into your land. We won't touch anything. We won't eat anything. We just want to cross over on our way up to the land that God promised us. And the king of Edom says, no, you can't cross over. If you cross over, we're going to go to war with you. And so they don't cross over. Some of you guys know that family grudges can go a long time. This one went on for a long time. They did not let Israel pass through Instead, they had to go from here. They can see it right there. Nope, sorry. Got to go the long way around Edom and up. And that's where we pick up the story. In Numbers chapter 21, starting at verse 4, it says, They traveled from Mount Hor, right about there, traveled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Can you identify with Israel right here? You ever said something like that to God? I mean, After 40 years of living in the desert, Eating manna day after day, 40 years of hoping the water would would not run out. I mean, let's be honest. If we get a little tired of the variety that's available to us at Fresh and at Connection, don't we? Right? Like, man, there's nothing to eat here. I'm so hungry. Food station, food station, food station, food station. There's nothing to eat. We complain about that. These guys have been eating flat bread made out of manna. For breakfast, flatbread for lunch, flatbread for dinner, flatbread for dessert. And at the right time of year, you might get a grasshopper taco for 40 years. They get right up to the edge of the land. They can see it. Nope. Sorry. Go around. And the state of their heart gets exposed. In verse 4, in Hebrew, actually reads, it says in your probably in your translation something like they became impatient, but the text reads, the souls of the people became short. <laughs> That's a great image, isn't it? Such a great description of what it looks like when we stop being grateful for all the gifts that God has given us. You ever been there? You start to feel entitled to God's generosity as if somehow God owed you something. This is how sin always works in our lives. It sets up this, it's subtle, it sneaks in there and it sets up this little kingdom of resentment inside of us. And the next thing you know, we sound an awful lot like Eve when way back in Genesis chapter 3, the servant says to her, hey, how come God won't let you have that fruit? You deserve it. God's got no right to keep that from you. You should just take it for yourself. This little kingdom of resentment gets built up and it leads us down a path to do two things. Always, all the time it happens, two things that that are demonstrated to us so clearly right here in Numbers 21. The first is we scorn God's love. Why'd you bring us out of Egypt to die here? Now, God's deliverance from Egypt was completely undeserved. They had done nothing to earn that. God did that as a free act of his generosity and grace to release them from slavery, to to keep his promise to take them to a new land. Why'd you bother if you're just going to let us die here anyway, scorning God's love? The second thing, we see in Numbers 21 that just happens every single time. We scorn God's love, and then we despise God's gifts. We detest this miserable food. In fact, the text says, there's no, f- no bread, there's no water, and the bread we do have, we detest. Blah. Ever said something like that to God? Anytime we scorn God's love and we despise God's gifts, we are treading into dangerous territory you know this is true what happens when you scorn your boyfriend's love some of you are in unhealthy relationships right now because you're so afraid of the confrontation that'll come when you say I don't really love you I don't really like you even we know what happens when you scorn your boyfriend's love you know what happens when you despise your girlfriend's gifts you'll say, oh, yeah, this is great, I really love it, because you just don't want that confrontation. Now, if it's true that to scorn our boyfriend's love and despise our girlfriend's gifts brings such conflict that we will avoid it, how much more? To scorn the love and despise the gifts of our Creator who rescues us from slavery and provides for everything we need every day of our lives but we do it don't we happens all the time just we can just take as an example the 10 commandments which is something a gift that God gives in their journey out of Egypt the law of God is a gift from God it shows us how to love him how to love others there's no guesswork in it we just have to follow the syllabus that God gave us for life it's such a tremendous gift how many of you all know the syllabus is a gift nobody that's okay Syllabus is a gift because otherwise your professor is going to say, he's going to show up and she's going to say, how come you didn't do your work? You're going to say, I didn't even know I was supposed to do work. God's law is that way. It's a gift to us, right? He says, this is the way of life that's going to help you know me and know truly who you are and know who your neighbor is, who other people are. This is a gift, the law of God. But here's what happens when we look at God's law. We look, God says, don't have any other gods but me. Okay, that seems pretty simple. Take out your calendar. Look in there. Take out your, your checkbook. Or I know you guys don't have checkbooks. Take out your Cash App account. Look in there. What does it say about who your God is? Because I know one thing for sure, that what we really want what we really believe, we will always make time for. And we always have enough money for. What does that say about who our God is? He's got really uncomfortable in here, didn't it? Let's get a little bit more uncomfortable. Let's talk about, let's take one more step into this. How many of us come to the well and we sing to God with all of our heart on Sunday nights about how good God is, about how great his faithfulness is, about thank you, God, for loving me. We give you praise for all that you have done. And boy, are we thankful that it's on Sunday night, because if it was on Sunday morning, it might be a little bit more of a struggle because we're still working out the tithe that we gave to Jack Daniels the night before. Somebody knows what I'm talking about who's our God? Let's let's move on. God says don't covet. How many of you have found yourself saying, God, how can that person be engaged and I'm still single? I mean, come on. Right? We've done this. God, how did that person get accepted to the grad program? I work twice as hard as they do. God says don't commit adultery, which is being sexually active with someone who is not your spouse, anyone who is not your spouse. And, you know, just in case it's unclear, that would include sexual massage, oral sex, and watching porn, which is just watching other people have sex while you take care of your own business. Any time we scorn God's love and despise his gifts we are treading on dangerous ground God's response to Israel when they scorn his love and despise his gift demonstrates this for us verse seven or excuse me verse six Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Yep. Snakes! That's the consequence. Death. The consequence of scorning God's love and despising his gifts. Every time. No exceptions. We see it over and over and over again in all these stories. It's a part of God that makes us very uncomfortable. Amen? Everybody else feels good about this? Not so much. No, this is a part of God's character that we are not at all comfortable with. We love that God delivers people from slavery in Egypt. That's good. Praise God for that, right? We love that God is going to bring and does bring justice to the evil regimes of the world. Yes, God, bring judgment toward ISIS. Yes, God, bring judgment on North Korea. Yes, God, bring judgment on Boko Haram. Yes to that. Yes, God, bring judgment on guys who shoot shoot into crowds of people in Las Vegas. We would love God to bring judgment on that. Yes, God, bring judgment onto people who plow through civilians walking down the street in New York, or, like what happened this morning, yes, God, bring judgment onto somebody who goes into a church service and kills 20 people in Texas. Absolutely. We are very comfortable with God bringing judgment on those things. They deserve it. But what about me? what about what I deserve? Because when God's judgment is pointed toward me, I am much less comfortable with that. But this is the reality we see in Numbers 21 and in every subsequent and preceding story. Scorning God's love and despising God's gifts equal death. Every time, in every situation, for every person. Culture, religion, race, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, they do not matter. Scorning God's love and despising God's gift equal death. That's true for you. It's true for me. And frankly, that should be the end of the story. It's what they deserve. They're snake-bitten. It's over. Except it wasn't. That's the craziest part of the whole thing. Story's not done. No, verse 7. Let's keep reading. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake. He put it up on a pole, and when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Huh? Weird. I mean, that's weird. God actually didn't do what they asked, did he? They asked Moses to pray God, take away the snakes presumably, Moses prayed, God, take away the snakes. And that's not what God does. No, instead, God says, put a snake, make a snake, put it up on the pole, and when someone gets bitten, because apparently the snakes are staying, they can look at the snake, and they'll live. Weird. Can you imagine how strange this first meeting must have been? Moses comes out of a meeting with the Lord and says, All right, everyone, gather around. I know uh, lots of our friends and family have been bitten by snakes uh, recently. I had a meeting with the Lord. Bad news: the snakes are gonna stay. The good news, God told me to make a snake, put it up on a pole, and if anyone's bitten by the snake, just come here and look at the pole, and you'll be fine. Okay? Good meeting, everybody. All right, let's go back to gathering manna. Grasshopper tacos tonight, remember. Weird. Sydney, I'm glad you're enjoying this. At least one person is. (laughs) God doesn't take away the snakes. But he makes a way for them to be delivered from the bite. It's a little weird. It's also brilliant. It's brilliant because now there's a symbol. The snake serves as a sign. It's a warning and it's a promise. This is an artist's rendition of uh, the bronze snake on Mount Nebo. Serves as a warning and as a promise. Interestingly, you see the star of life there. A little snake on a pole. Fascinating. Fascinating. I'm just gonna leave that be it serves as a warning and a promise it's a warning the snake on a pole is a warning and a constant reminder to this community of what happens when we scorn God's love and we despise his gifts every time you walk by that pole every time your kid asks you dad what's the snake for you're reminded that's what happens son that's what happens daughter when we scorn the love of God and despise his gifts it's a warning but it's also a promise it's a promise a constant reminder that God won't give up on us that he just will not quit that he loves us so much he always makes a way if we will trust him interestingly Jesus picks up on this story in John chapter 3 when he's having a conversation with a biblical scholar named Nicodemus Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus about this reality that everyone, including biblical scholars, are snake-bitten. The poison of sin is already inside. We're as good as dead unless God intervenes. Have what Jesus calls being born again. Jesus goes on in this conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Jesus says that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Did you hear that? Whoever does not believe is dead already. Snake bitten, the poison's already inside, no hope. But the hope of the world is Jesus. Weird. I mean, of all the things God could do, to send his own son crucified to bring the message of God's love and God's gifts. And it's only by looking to Jesus, up to Jesus in his death on a Roman cross that we have life. It's weird. And it's brilliant. Because like the snake in the desert, Jesus lifted up on the cross is a sign to us. It's a sign to the world. It's a warning and a promise. A warning that says it doesn't matter what your religion is. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your orientation. It doesn't matter your wealth. It does not matter. You are dead. You've already been bitten. The, sin, the death of sin is already inside of you. But Jesus lifting up on a cross is a warning to the world to repent, turn to God for deliverance. But Jesus up on the cross is also a promise, an incredible promise that God, because he loves the world so much, will not give up on it. and he has made a way for salvation for everybody who will look to Jesus. For deliverance, A promise that God has not, will not, cannot give up on his plan to restore the world to its purpose. To put an end to evil and injustice because it needs to be put to an end. To bring joy into places where right now there is despair. Some of you need that breakthrough. To bring abundance into places where there is now scarcity. Some of you know that you need that breakthrough. To bring freedom where right now there is slavery. The cross of Christ, friends, is a sign to us. A sign that God's salvation is true. It will be done because God's promised it. In fact, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says that in Christ, every one of, of God's promises is a yes to us. And it's for this reason that it is through him that we say amen to the glory of God. But every one of us, every person, has to respond to the sign of Jesus, the warning and the promise. To heed the warning that it gives us about how we have scorned God's love and rejected God's gifts, and to believe God's promise that whoever looks up to Jesus for life will find it. So, really, the most important question that any of us will ever answer it is not, has nothing really to do with majors, spouses, orientation. These things are all important, very important, the most important is do you trust Jesus? Have you repented of your sin by admitting to God that you have scorned his love? You have despised his gift. You deserve whatever judgment God has for you. Have you looked to Jesus to save you from the poison of sin that's in you? I'm going to lead us in a prayer in uh, just a moment based on Psalm 51, which is a prayer that David prayed when he committed a heinous act of sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, one of his soldiers. But it's a prayer that David prayed because he trusted God even in the midst of the recognition of his own sin. Trusting in God's salvation because it was God alone who could do it. This is going to be posted up on the screen for us. Uh, We're going to sit as we pray this together, but I want to offer you the, the opportunity that if the Spirit of God is speaking to you in such a way tonight, that He is leading you to say yes to His promises and to repent of the ways of death that you've been walking, the ways you've scorned His love and despised His gifts, I invite you that as we're praying this prayer together to stand up and claim this prayer as your own. And pray this prayer as a personal prayer of repentance about ways that you have scorned his love and despised his gifts. And as a personal prayer of embracing his promise that all who look to Jesus find life in him. Because these promises of God are for you and for all who will look to Jesus for life. Let's pray this together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge me. Cleanse me with the blood of Christ and I will be clean. Wash me in his righteousness and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Amen.